a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Dave and Dejanovic, your morning companions for talk, analysis, and key perspectives on Utah's biggest stories on KSL News Radio. Uh, we can see from the traffic cameras in studio and also just looking out here from Broadcast House on 3rd West and downtown Salt Lake City that we got a storm brewing. Uh, some of you are getting some snowflakes right now, others are not. But we can promise you one thing our entire team of reporters, producers, and the Weather Center, the Traffic Center, all eyes on the roads um, and the skies. And so the minute we know that there's something going on out there you need to know about, we will make sure you know about it. I was reminded of this this morning on Utah's Morning News. March, the snowiest month. Mm -hmm. Are you ready for that? What if we really do have like the snowiest March month? We will just be, we're buried. We're buried in snow at that point. It's 9.07. It's time for the launch. And here are three things that Debbie wants you to know. Countdown three. We talk a lot about mental health in the classrooms and our kids. How about for teachers? Let's dive into the school district email that has us asking this question in 45 minutes from now. Should teachers be allowed to take a sick day because their mental health is suffering? Seems like an easy yes to me, but apparently for one Utah school district, it was a it was a hard no. Uh, that's until the backlash began when the email went out. Yeah, the email. I think they admitted this. They're like, oh, I wish I could rewrite that email. But taking a mental health day, using it as a sick day, that has become more and more common. But I have no idea what qualifies. As a mental health day. Like, is that kind of like a sick of work day? Or maybe your coworkers should tell you. Dude, you need a day. <laughs> right. You are the we worst. We all took a vote, <laughs> and you need a mental health day. Countdown <laughs> to... Okay, this is one topic I cannot let go of. Um, we're going to dive into the cost of college again, uh, promising a, a, an awesome conversation in the 10 o'clock hour for a full 30 minutes. We're going to get State Auditor John Dougal because he's done a lot of research into the advertised price of a college degree and the actual retail value you end up paying by the time you get said degree. Uh, there's a huge disparity, and trust me, it is not in favor of the student, okay? So we're going to get to the bottom of that, and we're also going to ask a financial aid director at Utah Valley University about alternatives to student loans to pay for college, so you don't have to come like $100,000 out of pocket for that degree. Completely and totally fair. I want to know the truth in advertising so I can prepare. 
so I know exactly what I'm going to pay. And then I can make the comparison of, okay, is this a good return on investment? We do this in everything. Every time we make an investment in something, we're asking, okay, ultimately, what am I getting out of it? And if I don't know the true cost of college, that messes up the entire equation. Launch countdown one. It passed. Utah lawmakers doing something I think is really out of the box to get Utahns into their first home. Approving a plan to let new buyers dip into this $50 million fund, get up to $20,000 to get them into their first mortgage. Uh, We're going to have a live interview with President of the Senate, Stuart Adams. He's calling this show in 25 minutes from now to talk about this plan, get some details we haven't been able to get yet. That is coming up straight ahead, Dave. I would absolutely have used this. Really? Absolutely, one hundred percent. You just shocked me. I would have used okay. it. Okay. That doesn't mean I believe in it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't oh. think the state of Utah wow. should help me get into my first house. I just don't understand that. I don't understand the argument oh. around it. Okay, I don't that understand That being said, you. I totally would have wow. used it. Dave and Dujanovic. The launch. Commence. Dave and Dujanovic. Dave and Dujanovic. Special coverage of the top local story. That just shocked me. The question is, for me to you, Dave, is what are you going to tell your kids to do? Let's dive into that in a few minutes. If you sit here on air and say, I would have used it. Don't believe in it, but I would have used it. What are you going to tell your son when he gets ready to buy his first home the exact same thing (laughs) son i'm just telling you i hate the program i don't believe in it but here's the application all yours we began this conversation 10 days ago when the sponsor of this legislation senate president Stuart adams called the show to walk us through his plan and it hadn't passed yet and it passed yesterday it was an overwhelming yes from capitol hill it's to get more people into home ownership and out of the cycle of renting he joined us 10 days ago and i think he said it well we go to a landlord a tenant type of process that existed elsewhere in the world we're going to lose that middle class. And when people get to be 65 years old, what are they going to have for retirement? And that that's a real struggle, right? Because a lot of that equity, the ability to downsize, to not have a mortgage payment once you retire, these are, these are fundamentals. President Adams called the show a few days ago. He's calling again in 30 minutes to give us more details. We've got a lot of questions. In fact, if you have questions about this, text us at 57500. Text us your question, and we will try to get it asked uh, when we're on the air live with him. Uh, one of the questions I want to ask, is this a one-time fund of $50 million? Is it one and done, or will lawmakers look at replenishing it year after year? Uh, it's a $50 million fund expected to help, and this is a new detail I read in the Desert News this morning, 2,500 Utahns, Dave. And your son, Cole, could be one of them. Yeah, of course. Broke college kid, right? He has a full-time job. Maybe uh, they could get into a a house. But $20,000 would be a game changer because it allows for several things. A down payment, closing costs. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you buy down that interest rate. And he could buy a condo, a townhome, a single-family home. 
No more than $450,000. That is the cap in the legislation. And we've learned it has to be new construction. And you have to live in it. This can't be something, right? Right. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's not, he's it's, not, it's gonna not be, an investment yeah. property. We're, okay. we're not going to turn him into a slumlord. Okay. You know, or he's renting this thing out to any college kid who wants to use it as a flop pad. All right. So this is to this is to get people into their first home, give them the pride and ownership. Um, it was overwhelming too. Twenty eight to one in the Senate, sixty to eight in the House. So we got eighty eight in favor on Capitol Hill and nine opposed. It's overwhelming. But what we don't know is how new is new. Is this a spec home that is standing right now? And any new construction going forward, does that qualify? Um, we also know that it takes effect July 1st of this year, but I don't know if that means the funds are immediately available this summer. These are all questions we need to get answers to. And why only new builds? we got to ask them. If there's a 50, 60-year-old yeah. house that I could get into under $450,000, why wouldn't you want to open up that supply to I people. will tell you why. Because that 50, 60, 70, and 80-year-old home that your kids are looking at, because my son was looking at these types of homes too when the market was crazy, and I was going on his behalf to look at these homes. They need $100,000 worth of work. They're sinking on one side. The stairwell to the basement ends three steps down. Uh, there's a, there was one that had a natural gas smell all over the house. The minute I walked in, I thought, there's no way. There's no way that he's going to be able to afford to fix this up if he's tapped out with a mortgage payment and a home that is $400,000. So lots of great questions. The question we have for our listeners straight ahead is, do you tell your kids to take the deal? Do you tell them to take the deal? Come on, it's $20,000. It gets them into their first home. You cannot tell me that you are going to sit across the kitchen table from them and say, you got to do it on your own. Start saving. Get that $20,000 together and make that down payment on your own. Straight ahead, we're also going to get advice from a real estate agent. Will they tell their first-time home buyers to take this deal? So taking your live calls as well. 801-575-TALK. Next. Eye on the Hill 2023. Special coverage with Dave and Dijanovic. I'm looking forward to talking to the uh, Northern Wasatch Association of Realtors. I want to know if they will be telling their first-time home buyers, you know, take this deal, this $20,000. Yep, there will be a lien on the home so the state can recoup the costs, but, but maybe there's some pitfalls I haven't thought about. Besides the lien. <laughs> so is it more of an interest-free loan? Is that the idea? I Here's $20,000. Yeah. And if you sell that home before the 30 years is up, then you got to pay it back. Or refinance it. Or refinance. Yeah. It. Then you got to pay it and back. And the lien is on on the on the property. So it can't be sold without that money being recouped, right? Okay. When you have a lien on something that's a flag for um, you know the closing agents and the and the real estate agents who are involved to know that that twenty grand has to be put back into that pool of money. My question when we talked to Stuart Adams, who sponsored the legislation, the president of the Senate, is: Does that fund then continue to get perpetually replenished? So the next 
new home buyer, first time home buyer that comes along down the road can dip into that twenty grand that you know maybe your son buys it for example a home using that twenty grand sells it. That money goes back to the fund. He takes the equity he's earned. He buys his next home because you know they've got the family thing going on, so they need a larger home. But then the next new home buyer comes along, first time home buyer, and can grab that twenty grand that your son just replenishes. Is that you yeah, know what you I'm saying? Can, like there's you a could cycle. See it, of, yeah, it, that becomes a perpetual fund, right? Right. Maybe, it, it refunds itself. You pay not. it back, uh, or maybe it just keeps growing. Yeah, maybe. It, and that's the slippery slope that concerns me: is how involved and how much say do I want uh, the state of Utah to have in my private home purchases? Hmm. Uh, Taking your live phone calls in just a minute. That is a great question, Dave. 801-575-TALK. Do you tell your kids to take the deal or stay out, keep the state out of your private business? Let's go with Mike Ostermiller. He's the chief executive officer of the Northern Wasatch Association of Realtors. And I'm so curious to know your association's take on this. Will you be telling first-time homebuyers to go for this $20,000? And do you see any potential pitfalls for this if they do, Mike? Absolutely, we will. Um, uh, This is one of the most exciting bills to come out of the legislature this year because uh, it, it solves two problems. One is our buyers with increased interest rates are having a really hard time coming up with enough money as a down payment um, or to buy down an, 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 a, an interest rate so that they can afford to get into their first home. And the other problem is, is that starter homes in Utah are extinct. They don't exist anymore. If you look at what listings are out there, you can't find anything to help that family get started into home ownership. And so this bill will um, help attack that on the supply side because it applies to new construction homes that are built under that $450,000 price range. So it will incentivize builders to actually go build starter homes, and then it helps buyers to be able to get into them. So it's optional on the part of the buyer, but um, there is no downside. They They'll pay that back when they sell or when they refi, but they only have to pay back up to the amount that they get and the rest of the wealth that they accumulate by appreciation and value on that home is theirs to keep. I think fundamentally I don't understand why developers or why builders have stopped building the starter home and why $20,000 is all of a sudden going to get them all excited about building all these starter homes for our kids? Well, they're trying. Um, Part of the challenge is cities won't permit them often. Cities won't give enough density or they they won't help uh, do their part to keep costs down so that they can afford to build a home under that price range. How so? Uh, Like what would a city – be able to do or what are they doing to help to prevent that for builders well if you have, let's say you have an acre of ground to build on if a if a developer builder goes in and says hey i can build five houses on that acre and and um all those will end up costing around six hundred thousand a house or i can build seven houses on that acre or eight houses and if you give me those additional units that can drive the cost down, hopefully, to an amount where the buyers will be able to qualify for this assistance. And builders will want that, and cities will want that, because it will bring um, owner-occupied 
housing into the cities, which everybody wants. Well, we certainly appreciate you jumping on the line with us this morning as we're getting news that this legislation has passed. It now goes to the governor's desk. Um, My assumption is he's going to sign it. It seems wildly popular. Mike Ostermiller, the chief executive officer of the Northern Wasatch Association of Realtors, thank you so much for weighing in on this. We're talking about the $20,000 that new home buyers, uh, first-time home buyers, can use to put for down payment for closing costs or to buy down the interest rate. It would be a lien on the property, and then when they sold it or they refinanced it, they uh, the state could re- would recoup that twenty thousand dollars. So I think you put it well, Dave. It's almost like a loan. Yeah. Uh, with it's not an interest bearing loan. It just it just sits though on that home. Um, it needs to be repaid because it becomes a lien, and then whatever, as Mike Ostermiller just said, whatever equity is made by the buyer, they get to take that additional equity and go purchase their next home. And just to be very clear, if you're a new time or first time home buyer, you buy this home four hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars, and you've borrowed twenty thousand dollars against that. It, you immediately are upside down by twenty grand, right? You have your four hundred fifty thousand yeah, dollar loan, and then you got to mm-hmm. you know the twenty grand that helped in closing costs. So you can see where it would be beneficial to get into the house, but you you will have to pay it back, yeah. and that's that's a very important part of this. Doug from Salt Lake City, uh, would you tell your kids to take this deal, or do you want the government staying out of their private business? Uh, well, go find me a new construction home that costs less than $450,000. Okay, I got it. It's not, they're not there. I got it. Uh, number two, I, I'm a realtor and I disagree with Mike Ostemiller. Okay. Because uh, a lot of my, my, my clients can't afford a $450,000 house. They're looking more in the $300,000 range and there's no new construction for that. So they're buying the existing older homes in some of the uh, less desirable neighborhoods that they can afford and they can comfortably uh, make the payments on. And that's my concern. Are people, and are, just are, just uh, like Dave said, though, is, you know, you end up under, you know, underwater by 20 grand and then you go to refinance it, you know, three or four years later when the interest rates come down and you have to pay that $20,000 back. Okay, so... So just let me let me just back you up a minute. Um, do are sure. your are your clients coming to the table with a down payment of their own, and then this twenty thousand dollars would give them an additional boost to cover, for example, closing costs or buy down the interest rate, which I think would be one direction I would tell my kids to look at is buy down that interest rate. Um, actually, right now with the with the with the market the way it is, I've actually had. Uh, Two transactions that I've closed, where I actually had the the, the seller uh, clo- cover yeah. the closing costs yeah. and on both of them, and then the other one, um, one of the ones I'm currently working on, um, the 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 seller instead of reducing their price, they're actually going to uh, cover the buy down. Okay. For my buyer. Okay, Doug, I love this conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, so I'm looking at, okay, so if it's a, it's a buyer's market or shifting that direction, sure seems to be. 
you get the seller to pay the closing costs or buy down the interest rate, and then you take that $20,000 and you can use that toward the down payment on top of the money that you should be coming to the table with as a buyer, right? I mean, uh, are we sending our kids to the the, the signing um, suggesting they come up with zero down? I would never suggest that for my kids. There are loans right now that are available. I would never suggest a zero down loan for my kids. I would say save some money. Uh, I did a zero down. Extra, it's just not. Did so it work great? Did it? Yeah, work great. You were underwater though, right? When you got into the home because you had you financed the closing costs, or did you mm-hmm. have the seller or the yeah. seller pay that? Yeah, okay. no. I mean, it was. So you were still underwater. Yeah. So, all right, we're 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 just getting into the the weeds on this a little bit, but I I do feel like this. My the thing is, I'm excited about this. You don't seem as excited about it as I. Do. I'm excited about it. I'm I'm worried about the slippery slopeness. What? <laughs> of What's this. the slippery slope? Anytime you have the government, whether it's the federal government or the state government, step okay. in and play a role that is largely dictated by the private sector, and that's what it is, right? Home selling is not really done by the state government or the federal government. This is something, I sell my home to you, you buy mine, whatever it might be. It's an A-B transaction. Why are we bringing in the state to help make this happen? It just seems like an odd pairing. Well, it's looks like it's a done deal, but we can still ask President Stuart Adams that question, certainly when he calls. Like, will the state stick around? Well, this is just a one-and-done fund, and once the money's out, it's out. And also, I want to ask him about this new build idea. Like, is it possible that the rules could be loosened up at all to apply to older homes, like what you'd suggested and what our caller suggested? Doug, could it be an older home? David Dugenovic. Special coverage of the top local story. Well, we got a lot of questions and a lot of your questions uh, that we want to pose to Senate President Stuart Adams. He is a sponsor of this legislation that overwhelmingly passed both the Senate and the House and now heads to the governor's desk for signing $20,000 for first-time homebuyers. It's a $50 million state fund that would be set aside for them to dip into. And I'm torn on this, Deb, because looking back, I absolutely would have used this program when I purchased my first home. It would have been enormously helpful. I'm conflicted, though, because I'm not sure the state of Utah should be in the money lending business. That doesn't make a ton of sense. Like, why, why sweep in? create a, a multi-million dollar program, put a lien on my house. I mean, why should the state be involved in this? Or should this just be controlled completely by the private sector? President Adams, how did you convince your colleagues uh, up on Capitol Hill that the state should be involved in the, a program like this? Well, this was simply just refocusing our attention. And we've spent a lot of money, local uh, cities have spent a lot of money on a tax credits on uh, funding for multifamily housing. And the dialogue has totally been uh, that we have a housing affordability problem, but it's been focused on multifamily, on putting people into rental properties. Back in the day, back in the 80s and 90s, Utah Housing had a first home buyer program. This is not new. It's not something the state hasn't been involved in in the past. It was widely, widely successful. 
And what we did is we actually refocused the attention from affordable housing, meaning multifamily housing and rental properties, to first home buyers. And in America, we believe in home ownership. In Utah, we believe in home ownership. And this is a loan. It's a loan to try to get people into a home. And there's lots of reasons why we believe in home ownership. And there's so many that it wasn't hard to convince my colleagues once they thought about it. Help help walk me through this. Uh, the the difference between multifamily housing and this starter home. Well, again, we've given tax credits. Utah Housing has been involved in trying to help lower the interest rates for uh, all types of uh, low-income housing to allow people to get into uh, affordable housing. We've just given $60 million for the homeless. We gave uh, $50 million last year. We, we fund all types of homeless programs, and all of, the, all of them are focused on multifamily housing. And now it's time, and this is not, those have been grants before, but these are not grants. This is actually a loan, a loan for people to use to be able to get into a first home. And if you believe that we should have a landlord-tenant relationship when we should lose our middle class and that people shouldn't have the pride of ownership or the equity building, the building they get from a home, we need to continue to focus on multifamily housing. But I believe, believe we need to pivot and we need to focus on single-family housing for people to have that, that pride of home ownership and the equity they'll, they'll gain as they get into their retirement years. When will these funds become available? I saw on the legislation itself, it goes into effect on July 1 of this year. But when will that funding be available for people to start dipping into? Well, this program will be administered by Utah Housing. They're working as fast as they can to try to implement it. We think that it'll probably be available around that period of time as the, the, as the legislation takes effect after July 1 of this year. But Utah Housing is already advertising it. They're already out trying to work with the, the lenders and those, those other uh, institutions will help implement this. So they're hard at it, but I think actually that the time frame will probably be about July 1 of this year. Why um, only new built homes? A new great home question. And that's a really great question. And the reason is simple. There's not enough housing uh, uh, stock in the market right now. And so we need to create new housing for that's affordable for first home buyers. So this is for new product. And the, again, the idea is that both municipalities, cities, and developers will try to develop product that can satisfy this first home market. I've heard from lots of city council members that say, we're, we're actually approving small lots, but no first home buyer can afford these small lots. So if you actually get the development community focused on trying to, to build housing that, could, that first home buyers can afford and municipalities making approvals on, on smaller lots that first home buyers can afford to be in, you align both of them together and that is the purpose of the bill. We're talking to President of the Senate, Stuart Adams. He's live on the line with us because the uh, both the House and the Senate overwhelmingly approved that $20,000. We'll call it a loan. It would be a lien on the property for first-time home buyers to get into their first home. Um, and this looks like it's going to help about 2,500 people. It's a $50 million fund. Do you anticipate that this fund will last in perpetuity, or is this a one-and-done 
this is a one-time event. And again, we're seeing it, uh, again, uh, the market shift a little bit. We've seen interest rates go from 3%. Now they're up around 6%. Uh, this will actually uh, comes at a great time, in my opinion, where you can actually uh, use the money to buy down the rate to make housing more affordable. But it is just a one-time funding, and we'll see how it works. But uh, we, we, I think uh, we'll see how oh, the next year or two how well it's accepted and how many homes and how many people were able to help with it. President Adams, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe, aren't you, you're a home developer, right? Yeah, well, I haven't built a home for probably the, maybe many years, probably as long as 10 years ago. But uh, in the day, we built lots of homes, but uh, I'm not building homes right now. Is, is there a conflict of interest, though, uh, or is this just tapping into your expertise um, that this does seem to favor the developers. Yeah, I suppose if I were building homes, it might be a conflict for me personally, but I understand the industry very well, and I understand how the industry works, and I understood how it worked back in the day. And it's really disappointing for me that we haven't continued to focus on first-home buyers like we did back in the 80s and 90s, and we're focusing on multifamily. And I think that expertise has helped me to be able to bring a program out that uh, will be used and be very, very, very successful for these first-home buyers. We asked our listeners to weigh in on their text line with with some questions. And the one that continues to kind of come up is, how is $450,000 affordable for a first-time homebuyer with the $20,000 infusion of this loan from the state? It still seems like that price tag would be out of reach for a lot of young Utahns. What it, what's your response to that, President Adams? Well, again, I think if you're able to buy down the interest rate and uh, the cap is at four hundred and fifty thousand, you you can find a product in the three fifty, and that may be a townhome. Yeah. But if you find a product that's cheaper, again, the effort was to try to drive these prices down and to be able to make it affordable. But with a lower interest rate, I think you'll find people that will actually be able to afford and use this program. President of the Senate, Stuart Adams, thank you for joining us. And uh, like I said, Deb. I look at this number, I look at that 20000 100% would have been a game changer for me mm-hmm. uh, because the closing costs, the buying down the interest, that kind of stuff, not even talking about the down payment or affording the, the mortgage. It's all the costs leading up to it, getting in. Dave and the oh, let's head back up to Utah's Capitol Hill as we continue to keep an eye on the hill. We're going to talk code blue on homelessness, there's some legislation that we have been keeping uh, tabs on. Here's uh, KSL News Radio's Adam Small to kind of give us the lay of the land. This new bill seeks to address shelter needs primarily in the winter. At the same time, Utah is seeing one of its biggest winters in years. KSL.com reports House Bill 499 would require counties with at least 175,000 people, that includes Salt Lake, Davis, Weber, Utah, and Washington counties, to create winter shelter plans beginning in 2024. The bill got nearly unanimous support from the House, including Representative Joel Briscoe. I encourage the 74 rest of you to go survey your district and look at the resources and talk to the elected officials and the nonprofits, the churches and the other groups in your district. The bill now heads over to the Senate. Adam Small, KSL News Radio. One of the hardest things this winter has been, Debbie, every day when I get off the train to walk into work, I walk past a, a homeless encampment under the overpass. And when we have these bitterly, and I mean 
bitterly cold days, five, 10 degrees. Um, and I see these unsheltered folks just lying, not in, not in tents, but in the open air, maybe covered by a tarp. I am just heartbroken. Representative Steve Ellison, uh, the bill's sponsor on the line live with us right now. Um, good morning. Good morning. So practically speaking, this legislation, one, if it's all, it all gets through Capitol Hill and signed by the governor, what does this look like out on the streets? Yeah, thank you. So we've seen just this winter, you know, upwards of a dozen unsheltered individuals uh, freeze to death uh, just between Salt Lake and Utah counties. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's any secret that there's lots of challenges in citing either a permanent or a temporary uh, homeless shelter. And so the introduction of a concept called Code Blue would basically say once the temperature hits a certain point, we it triggers uh, very flexible zoning. It doesn't require any zoning approval whatsoever. It grants that automatically to where uh, d- different facilities, uh, community centers, churches, could be automatically opened up to shelter people from the frigid temperatures and hopefully <clears throat> prevent a humanitarian disaster if we have you know, extremely low temperatures and our, if our other shelters are full, we need this kind of automatic mechanism to, uh, to protect people. We, we saw something happen earlier this year, maybe in the last month, but it was one of these bitterly cold nights and uh, a local group came down and set up essentially pop-up tents, covered them in uh, some, some tarps, and then basically threw some heaters in there for, for people uh, to, to warm up. But then the next morning, they were being torn down. Would this allow for some of these pop-up situations on these especially cold nights? Yeah, I'm very familiar with the group that, that did that to, to try to protect people. Um, we can do better than that. And that's what Code Blue will allow. We won't, wouldn't need to set up tents because we have lots of uh, you know community kind of commercial buildings that could be utilized uh, on a nightly basis and you know they've got fire suppression and you know built-in heaters anytime you start putting people in a tent with say a propane heater that introduces a whole separate set of risks that we really don't want to have to deal with so 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 just real quickly before we let you go representative for example could a school um, be turned into like during the winter break uh, be turned into a, a shelter on on a moment's notice? Um, you know, I, I think it could. I think the reality is, is that we have a lot of, you know, dip, other facilities like okay. rec centers that would have showers and bathrooms okay. and maybe be a little bit more flexible. But the, the goal is to provide options that so we don't have to, in the moment, declare an emergency. There is space, though, oftentimes in shelters that goes unused because folks are choosing not to go, even when there is availability. Do you address that? Um, so currently this winter, our existing resource homeless resource centers under a bill I ran last session had to flex uh, because we didn't have sufficient winter over, overflow, even with the opening of the Mill Creek uh, shelter. And so this bill would actually increase the ability to flex. To your point, there's always going to be a number of people that are shelter resistant. However, when it gets really cold, we find even those people will typically seek refuge in, you know, a church or a rec center if that becomes available. 
Representative Steve Ellison, thank you for joining us. Wendy Garvin, Executive Director of Unsheltered Utah, waiting on the line right behind the representative. You were part of that group. In fact, you called the show uh, who set up those those tarps um, downtown to shelter the unsheltered during that bitter cold spell we had. Wendy, what do you think of this code blue plan that that the representative seems to be winning over support on Capitol Hill for? I am thrilled with it. Um, we set up tents because it was the only option we had at the time. But I 100% agree with Representative Ellison. The best solution is to put people inside of safe buildings with with fire suppression, with heaters, with showers, and to provide them the services that we all have access to on a regular basis. Well, why would it just be a, a few days? Should this be a, a, a larger bill that would allow this to be the case basically whenever it is deemed necessary? Why only like 15 below, or fifteen degrees? Well, I, I think that um, the bill has some other parts to it. One is the overflow that Representative Ellison referred to. Those are beds that are open every day all the way through winter, and, um, and they do address that ongoing need. But as he referenced, there are some people who don't prefer shelters, um, maybe because of PTSD incidents or or maybe they had a bad experience at a shelter. So they only come inside when it is life-threatening. And that's the population that the Code Blue Bill would best represent. Wendy, in the 60 seconds or so we have left, just give uh, us a visual of what you see this, uh, how you see Code Blue going when the temperature... I mean, hopefully it doesn't happen again this year, but maybe next year hits uh, those those life threatening temperatures when the or you know it's fifteen or below um, outside. What building do you do you open up, um, and and can the city stand in your way if this is state law? This bill prevents the city from stopping us. You may know that uh, my group also opened up a church this winter, and uh, we did that technically against the law. We decided that we were willing to take that risk uh, to save lives. But this this now lifts the zoning problems that we were facing and allows us to do something like that in a church or a rec center or any other community building that folks can make available to us. We can bring the volunteers and we can open up and provide hot homemade meals and safety. So that's what I hope that we see all through the the Wasatch Front in the upcoming year. Wendy Garvin, thank you for joining us, Executive Director of Unsheltered Utah. Good for you, Representative Ellison, and also uh, Unsheltered Utah. Good for you. Get Get the government at the local levels out of the way if they are going to block or be resistant to getting folks sheltered. Uh, get them out of the way. And that's what this legislation does. Uh, and, and the moment that Representative Ellison said, we have lost 12 people, 12 people who froze to death on the streets of Salt Lake County in Utah County. What do you say in the last few months, Dave? Yes. Yeah. Just this season. I'm sold. I'm sold. So now it'll be state law if the bill gets through. My concern is, and I saw this, I saw, I've seen this all, all winter, there are shelter-resistant that will not go in, no matter how cold it is. It's shocking. It's it's hard for you and I to understand that. Uh, but there, there are some folks that just refuse to go, no matter how cold it is. Maybe this will make it easier for them. 
Forgiving College Debt. Special coverage with Dave DeGenevic. We're supposed to be getting a live report from Washington, D.C. Uh, to see what the fallout is or the scuttle is after yesterday's uh, Supreme Court hearing regarding President Biden's student loan debt, student loan forgiveness program. You weren't here yesterday. You conveniently had the day off. We talked a lot about this because the oral arguments were being heard. Um, the, the Taylor Morgan, who filled in for you yesterday, I asked him what he thought the chances were that this would be held by the Supreme Court. He's like, not a chance. Not a chance. So he felt very much the same way as I do. Okay, that's good. He, he did some good proxy work for me. Uh, is Ann Flattery on the line? Okay, we don't have ABC News on the line. So I want to skip ahead because we do have another guest holding on the line, and that's our state auditor, John Dougal. And, and my question is, how do kids uh, afford the price of college without a student loan? But I want to back that up. Um, Auditor Dougal, um, my concern is, is that as parents, at least I'll do take my experience when we go to the tuition calculators online, um, or to the college websites in Utah, and we see that tuition is $9,300 a year. I mean, my eyes definitely pop out at that, but that is not the true cost. It's so much more than that. And so how can we help our guide our kids if we don't know the actual cost. And I know you've done a lot of work in this area. It is great to be with you too. And Debbie, you're absolutely right. You look at that number that you saw and you look and say for a four-year degree, that's about $40,000 for that four-year degree. But that's just tuition. There are fees. And if you look at the University of Utah, you talked about $4,800 per semester you've got another almost $600 in fees that go on top of that that every student must pay. Per semester? What we call mandatory fees. Per semester. So so you look and you start adding that up, and and it just gets more and more. And then when you look and say only 35% of students in Utah graduate on time, you're going to have another upwards of almost 40% that are going to take an extra year and you start adding that number on, and now you're talking about $54,000 a year. And if you're somebody that takes six years, that's $65,000. And that's well beyond what you thought you were getting into when your kid went to college. Well, I think ultimately, whenever I'm having this conversation with my kids, who, who a couple of them are going to college right now, uh, you have to take into account lost wages, you know, opportunities missed, you know, what does it look like six years down the road, the degree you're getting in? And if you changed majors, I, it, there's so much that goes into this. I think ultimately we're trying to figure out what's my return on investment. And we're trying to boil it down to a number. And it, there's there's just not a good way to boil that number down. Well, and, and, and Dave, you're right. It's hard to find that kind of number. And too often uh, students don't really think about that number. Too often society has said, whatever the cost of college is, it'll pay off in the end. And we're seeing that is not the case for many students. And so we're seeing students take on debt. And uh, like you said, opportunity costs are foregoing a job uh, to get a college degree that then doesn't provide for them. And they drop out along the way and they incur all these costs and they think they're a failure rather than seeing the success because they've considered 
here's what I'm going to get based on that degree. I want to I want to touch on this too about the cost the tuition that's posted online compared to the what ends up being the actual retail value that you end up paying out at the end and it doesn't favor students. It's a lot more than this for example I'm going to hit on my daughter's college degree at the University of Utah. Um when I see $9,300 per year, I say, I wish. That must be for a lesser, complicated, complex degree than the pre, you know, pre-med program that she's enrolled in because we paid $4,500 just a few weeks ago for a couple of classes in the lab. And that's not even a full load. So I'm looking, if I was paying for a full load for Katie, uh, we're looking more at maybe ten or... $12,000 in a semester. Yeah. Well, Dave's eyes just fell out course, of his head. Yeah. 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 And you're talking course fees and then textbooks yeah, on top of that. And so, all John, how do we fix else. this? Yeah. How do we fix this so students know how much of a loan they have to take out or how much of a scholarship they have to, to go begging for or, or how, you know, how much birthday money they have to save? How does the state of Utah fix this? And as the state auditor, I know you've had to have had conversations now that you know about your research, this is this is where the public needs to get more engaged, and if you will, put political pressure on the system of higher education, to you know the board of higher ed, the commissioner's office, and and each of the institutions, because I think too often the message they're getting is, well, either the students will pay, the taxpayers will pay. There's unfortunately not a good discussion about how do we rein in the costs and even cut the costs of higher ed. Um, too often when you hear things about cutting the cost, what that really means is the taxpayers pay more. It's not truly cutting the total cost of, of higher ed. And unfortunately, we have a system which the incentives are misaligned. The longer a student takes to get through, universities are funded based on headcount, typically. And so the most, more students that are there, the more money they get, whether it's from the taxpayers or from the students. And the slower the students go through, unfortunately, the more money they get from those students. Their incentive is not to say, how quickly do we graduate the students with a qualified degree and get them out earning money? State Auditor John Dougal, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for that, John. And universities, colleges, they're in a terrible position, right, Debbie? Because if they if they spell all of this out on their website and they talk about opportunity lost and uh, return on investment, it's almost like you're you're shooting yourself in the foot. Mm. You know, if you're a business, you run your business, you make your best pitch you can, and then it's your job as the consumer to do your homework. And I think we have to put that weight on our own shoulders as well. We have to do some research. Well, but when I go to the website, and as you did, yeah, as you go to this times. website and you type in the cost calculator and the estimator. Yeah, it's not even close. And you're not even in the ballpark. So, so let me help future students do their research. It's not even close. It is not even close. I want to get to Washington, D.C. We got Ann Flattery, a senior national policy reporter with ABC News, standing by live to give us uh, her take on the Supreme Court arguments and, and, what's, and, and what the fallout is uh, for the Biden administration. Good morning, Ann. Good morning. Yeah, we heard yesterday from the Supreme Court, the conservative majority appeared very skeptical that the White House plan is legal, uh, at least without approval from Congress. They said that the sheer scope and size of this program, costing the government nearly half a trillion dollars, 
probably should be approved by Congress first. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas was talking about paying off his own student loans and calling this effectively a grant that needed to be decided by Congress. Now, the flip argument to that is that, you know, I heard you guys talking before the college tuition has soared dramatically since the days that he was in school. It's up 300 percent in the past 50 years. So the government saying they're sure that they have the power to do this. They think this is within their authorities. Uh, The Supreme Court, conservative justices not being so sure. Is there any hope for uh, kids that were pretty excited about this announcement or does this just seem uh, dead in the water? Well, of course, the Supreme Court's not going to make their decision until June. Um, And I know that advocates have been meeting privately with the White House and pressing them to say, hey, come up with a plan B. But the White House says so far that they don't, that they're putting all their eggs in this basket. Now, there is one issue that's kind of come up in the Supreme Court, which is that do Republicans have standing in this case? You, You can't just sue and say, well, I think something's unfair. Uh, People would be suing all the time. You have to actually prove that you've somehow been injured. So there is this question of standing. Do the Republicans, can they prove actual injury to their states if this loan forgiveness program goes through? And that is still in question. And Flaherty, thank you for joining us, senior national policy reporter out of ABC News. And Debbie, going back to this standing point, Mm -hmm. uh, I I do know, uh, as I've done some of my research in this, um, that the the strongest standing argument is really coming from the states, states that are stepping in and saying we are the ones that are being wronged, um, not the individual person or the student oh, that may have taken upon these these roles. So it, it's really the states that are driving this as far as standing goes. Straight ahead, let's let's get with the financial aid director at Utah Valley University. I think this uh, calls into question. Can you afford to pay for college without taking out a student loan and without coming out of pocket, which could be $100,000? I mean, we just did the math between housing costs and the actual retail value of that degree. Once you get done paying for it, it could cost you $100,000. But are there alternatives? Uh, We're going to ask him what those are. Forgiving College Debt. Special coverage with David DeGenevic. We just made an excellent case. Uh, the cost of college that is uh, advertised uh, on websites, college websites across Utah, it does not end up being the actual out-of-pocket cost that you end up spending. So it's My experience is a lot more money than that. So the next uh, question we're going to ask is, is there a way to pay for college that doesn't you know, create a situation where you're in student loan debt forever and ever. Can you do it like we used to do it with, without a loan? Pay as you go. Pay as you go, save up, work hard in the summer, which is what I did. Worked hard in the summer, saved up, paid for my tuition throughout the year. Can you still do that? And I look at the cost and and um, what did our last interview uh, say? That tuition costs have raised 300% yeah, over the, the last 50 years. I mean that's incredible. Yeah, and certainly our, our wages haven't gone up three hundred. So if your if your son or daughter is living outside the home, they estimate that's fifteen thousand a year for off campus living expenses. That's food and um, you know the roof over their head. Uh, tuition they put it, for example, at the U of U ninety three hundred dollars. I think that's certainly degree dependent, program dependent. It's a lot. My experience is a lot more than that. 
That number is an I wish number when we actually get the tuition bill. So if you're going to do this on your own, I would say it's if you do a four-year plan, which a lot of people, you can't. You just can't do it anymore four years if, at that at that price if you're working your way through it. You got to plan on $25,000 a year to live off campus and pay for tuition and fees. $25,000 a year is what you have to earn. But that doesn't even include the cost of a car, the cost of the car breaking down, uh, a medical expense that pops up. That is just to fund your living expenses, bare bones, and attend classes. It can be overwhelming. Uh, And I think it's difficult for the schools to come up with an exact number Mm -hmm. because every degree is different. How long it takes for you to finish uh, the school or your schooling? Is it four years? Is it five years? Is it six years? Did you drop out for a semester? I mean, there's so many things that play into it. John Curl is the director of financial aid and scholarships at Utah Valley University. And you've been so helpful with information in the past. We're glad to have you back on the line with us, John. Thank you. So give us an avenue to pay for college uh, that do, for a four-year degree that does not require a student loan and mom and dad footing the whole bill. <laughs> so can you walk us through options? Sure. I, I think there's some strategies. I, I, I don't know that there's a particular thing that's just a silver bullet and solves everything, but I think there's some strategies. Um, I, I think it probably begins with maybe a college savings program like a, a 529 plan. State of Utah has a has a good program, but there's others out there. Um, but that that's obviously years in advance before a person goes to school. Um, another avenue would be concurrent enrollment or AP credit um, that the student is involved in while they're in high school. We have a number of students who are well on their way to a, an associate's or have earned an associate's by the time they graduate from high school. Those credit hours are much less expensive than, uh, you know, once they are in college. Um, there's tuition assistance programs through employers, uh, either the individual or, in some cases, the parents. Um, the parents' company may have... Um, some benefits that they're associated with that. Military, um, they have some some great programs, uh, college payment, uh, college uh, benefits uh, associated with their military service, and then obviously scholarships, um, and uh, also applying for for financial aid and seeing if, if a person is eligible for grants. Uh, you know, we, we talk about t- tuition costs, but State of Utah is a relatively low uh, tuition cost uh, state. Um, for example, our school, a resident student, uh, if they qualify for full Pell, it, it pays all of their tuition um, if they're attending full time. Uh, so, so there are some avenues out there, um, but but it's a strategy and um, and it starts early. John Curl is the Director of Financial Aid and Scholarships at Utah Valley University. Uh, John, when you're sitting down with, with kids and you're discussing how much uh, they need to be prepared for from year to year, can you come up with a number? Is there a number that you, you tell them to be prepared for? 
Yeah, and I, I think you guys had referenced this, that there's uh, cost of attendance figures that each school is required to publish. Um, there's there's uh, certainly costs that are kind of hard, like the tuition ones where they're kind of set based on the credit hours that you take. Um, it, those are the things that you have to count on that the, that you're going to that you're going to have to um, come up with the funding for. Uh, some of the other expenses, those can fluctuate based on what choices a student makes. Obviously, if a student chooses to live at home rather than uh, in the dorms, that's a cost that can save them a lot of money. John, I want to get a little deeper into the arena of... I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Held grants. Sure. So I remember when my, I, I think my do, my my youngest, uh, all the students had to apply, I can't remember it was in high school, maybe it was part of a, a program Probably. or one of the classes they took, and right. they were ineligible because of the income that, you know, they're, Okay. So is there a strategy with that? For example, you step away from being claimed by your parents for a couple of years and then you could become eligible for Pell Grants. I don't want to game the system on live radio, but I've always wondered that. I thought, well, Katie, if you just move out and kind of survive on your own, maybe you could qualify for all this money. I'm rich. My kids are poor. So, But is there a way if they're going to pay for it on their own anyway? So if their parents right. are listening, like, my kids, I'm just, they can pay for uh, college on their own. But is there a strategy we can help them with getting out from under their parents on their, you know, on the tax returns and getting out on their own and then being able to qualify for Pell Grants? Or am I just completely um, sounding like a criminal right now? <laughs> it's not a criminal. Okay. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it used to be years ago um, – that, you know, as long as your parents didn't claim you, then you could be independent. That changed uh, a, quite a few years ago where uh, now it's, there's an age factor. If they get married, um, you know, if they are no longer in a bachelor's degree but have moved on to a, to a, a graduate program, then they're kind of um, independent of their parents. And so uh, they, they have to be at least 24 uh, before they go off of their parents' income. And so I, I, I think the federal government's point was, um, it, you know, it's number one, it's the, the student's responsibility for their education, and number two, the family, um, and, then, yeah. and then looking down the road that makes, from there. That makes sense. Okay. I, I hadn't heard that. You said married? That that plays a role it, into it? Yeah, yeah. If a, if a student gets married, uh, then they're, they can become independent of their parents' income. Even if they're under 24, obviously. Correct. Okay. Well, John, you're, you're a fountain of knowledge. We appreciate you joining us. John Curl, the Director of Financial Aid and Scholarships at UVU. I like the option of finding an employer who will help subsidize or reimburse for a college degree. 
Debbie, I, I love that idea. I was absolutely shocked, and it was one of the reasons my son decided to work where he does. It was uh, at a, a, a plasma donation facility, and one of the things they told him, he was just going to go part-time. He was just going to work hmm. part-time. And they said, well, if you go full-time, and full-time was 30 hours, oh. 32 hours. It wasn't a full 40 full-time hours. full-time light. Yeah, exactly. If it's full-time light. They said if you if you work full-time, then you will qualify for tuition assistance, which was somewhere around $5,000 wow. per year. Well, really? Like, Dude, that is incredible. Well, and you see, Jump on that. UVU... And the average tuition there, I looked that up, is about sixty two hundred a year. So he gets real close. Yes, to it's a game that changer, cost. right? I, I mean, it. if you have to come up with a thousand dollars in tuition versus a six thousand sixty five hundred, that Dave, Dave and the Genevieve. I am looking forward to this discussion and learning a lot more about this case uh, that is happening right now. This story comes to us by way of KSL.com, and here's the, the here's the headline. The state of Utah argues in favor of the Northwestern ban of Shoshone hunting fishing rights lawsuit in Idaho. So the federal government, the state of Utah, and the tribe are on one side, if you will, Dave, of the courtroom, and... The state of Idaho is on the other, and we're going to get a lot of details about what this case is all about. But I know it sparked your interest because of two words, hunting, fishing. Yeah, this is this is fascinating. The tribe is suing Idaho and two fishing game officials claiming the state denied its right to hunt and fish on its ancestral lands. And this was guaranteed. This, this mm-hmm. was a really, really surprising part, an interesting, fascinating part of the story. These, these rights mm-hmm. to hunt and fish were guaranteed guaranteed by a treaty that's called the Treaty of Fort Bridger back in 1868. Larry Echohawk is, uh, you have so, so many titles here. He's with us in studio, but let me walk our listeners through um, your a little bit of your resume um, because you've done so much in terms of fighting for the rights of Indian tribes. Um, you served under uh, President Barack Obama as the U.S. Assistant Secretary of the Interior for Indian Affairs. Um, and you said, you said to us moments ago, that is the highest ranking position um, that, uh, in Indian Affairs. Um, you're also currently the advisor to the governor here in Utah and the attorney general here in Utah, and hence why you're involved in this case. Uh, and you also at one point, and this is an interesting twist, you were the attorney general for the state of Idaho way back in the 90s. Yes. So welcome. Thank you. What is the problem right now? I mean, what can you walk us through how, how often hunting and fishing is used by the, the Shoshone tribe in, in these areas of Idaho? Well, uh, there's a lot of history behind this case, and it goes way back to actually prior to 1868 Fort Bridger Treaty because there were numerous bands of Shoshone, of the Shoshone Nation, spread across five states. And uh, here in Utah, we have the Northwest Band of Shoshone. They're located... Uh, their headquarters is in the Ogden area, but uh, their Aboriginal territory was in northern Utah and southern Idaho. And uh, 
there was uh, an unfortunate thing happened on January 29th of 1863, just across the state line near Preston, Idaho, where uh, the United States Army under uh, Colonel Patrick Connor led about 200 soldiers of the California Volunteers to attack a village of a northwest band of Shoshone people. And it's been identified as, you know, perhaps the largest massacre of Native people in United States history. Uh, the numbers are kind of up for debate, but at least 200 and maybe as many as 500 Northwest Shoshone people, uh, mainly women and children, were slaughtered. And that diminished the size of the tribe, but they continued to live in their homeland, which is mainly in Utah. So they're a federally recognized tribe and participated in the Fort Bridger Treaty of 1868. The United States wanted land open for settlement, and the Shoshone Nation had like 80 million acres of land that under the laws of the United States was their right to occupy. And in the Fort Bridger Treaty, there were about 14 bands of Shoshone that came to an agreement with the United States where over 40 million acres of land was transferred into ownership of the United States. And there were promises, of course, in return. And the one that is the focus of the lawsuit is in Article 4 of the treaty where the tribes reserve to themselves the right to hunt on the unoccupied lands of the United States, meaning federal lands. And uh, that's the issue in the case, is that does the federally recognized uh, Northwest Band of Shoshone, uh, are they entitled to exercise that right in their aboriginal territory, which reaches into Idaho? Idaho has been criminally prosecuting tribal members there, so the tribe Northwest Band had enough of that, and so they filed a suit in federal court in Idaho, and they actually lost that case where the judge said because you didn't relocate to or locate on one of the two large reservations that were established, one in Wind River, Wyoming, and one in Fort Hall, Idaho, that you don't have the right to hunt. So the appeal was sent to the United States Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals And what's really interesting about this case is that the Solicitor General for the Department of Justice, the United States, um, filed an amicus brief in support of the treaty right. And this is not new because back in 1985, the Regional Solicitor of Interior had pronounced that this treaty right was valid. And what's really, really interesting is that the state of Utah has a very good working relationship with the Northwest Band. They actually have a cooperative hunting agreement in place that recognizes the rights of these people to uh, hunt uh, on federal lands. And the state of Utah filed an amicus brief as well. So you had the United States, the state of Utah, 
and the tribe arguing on one side, and you had the state of Idaho on the other. So that argument occurred on February 6th of this year. We're speaking live right now to Larry Echohawk. He's been involved with this case that you were just uh, explaining is going on in, in Idaho. Uh, he is also special counsel to the governor of the state of Utah, as well as the attorney general. Um, and I'm curious to know about these tickets or prosecution that's been happening. So the Shoshone tribal members are hunting um, or fishing on these lands that they are theirs, rightfully, uh, to do so on under this treaty from more than 100 years ago, I'm not 155, six years ago. And they're being ticketed by fishing game up there in Idaho. Is that is that what brought this to a head? Yeah, they were criminally prosecuted for exercising the treaty right in the Idaho portion of the Aboriginal territory of the Northwest Band. And what do you do then? The tribe really didn't have much choice. If they want to make sure their treaty rights are valid, they file suit against the state of Idaho. So do they have uh, the ability to, to hunt um, really with, with, with impunity? They can just uh, do whatever they want? The tribe will regulate their own hunting uh, by their members, by tribal regulation, and there is limits on that. Okay. You know, we call it conservation necessity. They can't take animals where would it would endanger the species or something like that. But it's up to the tribe to regulate, and they do. They, they provide permits for their tribal members to do that. Uh, the Did total, these individuals have permits from the tribe? Yes. And the tribe, uh, after the massacre, you might imagine it's not a large tribe. There are about 560 tribal members. And I've heard the tribal leaders say we only have about 20 hunters. But the treaty rights are very, very important to the tribe. They don't want to let go of those rights because they gave up for the Northwest Band out of that over 40 million acres that the United States received, 10 million was from the Northwest Band. And they said, we gave a lot. We should recognize our treaty rights. And one more comment here that I think very relevant is under the United States Constitution, treaties are deemed the supreme law of the land. If people believe in the Constitution, they should recognize that these treaties, there were actually 389 treaties entered into with Native people. The U.S. Supreme Court has said they're no different than treaties with foreign nations. We stick around. Uh, we want to continue this conversation. I really want to ask, I mean, you've laid out a, an amazing case. I mean, if I'm, I'm the judge, I'm case closed. <laughs> I'm finding in favor of the Shoshone tribe. Um, but I'm curious to know uh, if if Idaho has any leg to stand on with this. So let's get into that conversation straight ahead. Dave and Dujanovic. Continuing our conversation with Larry Echohawk. Uh, he's a special counsel for Indian Affairs. For, he's advisor to the governor, an advisor to the attorney general here in Utah. And we're talking about this case that is just it fascinates me. It baffles me all at the same time. It has to do with the Shoshone Indian tribe, um, members of the tribe being ticketed in Idaho while uh, using the land that under a treaty they have the right to use, a, a federal treaty that was signed more than 150 years ago. 
um, but being ticketed by the state of Idaho, and that case is in court right now. And Larry, uh, as you were describing this, just to make sure it's clear in my mind, the, the some of the aspects of the treaty were we're going to give up some of our rights to the land, but we are not going to give up our rights to hunt and fish this land. Am I correct on that? That's right. And the courts have said, the United States Supreme Court precedent, what the tribes were doing is reserving to themselves the right to hunt and to fish on the unoccupied lands of the United States because these were tribal lands. So it's not that the federal government granted these rights, but the tribe, you know, reserved them to themselves. And they gave up 10 million acres of land, you know, in exchange for the promise of uh, uh, actually a reservation which never was delivered to them and also the right, which was very important because they were – they they subsisted on fish and game and roots and berries from the land, and uh, they reserved the right to do those things. So uh, some tribal members are, are ticketed by the state of Idaho or by the fish and game folks that, that patrol these areas, and this comes to a head because now they're being prosecuted criminally for doing what they feel is protect well that is protected under this treaty. Now it all ends up in court, and you said you were watching the arguments uh, from the courtroom. Um, what possible case can Idaho make that it's right, and the Shoshone Indian tribe tribal members are wrong? Well, I think it was a difficult day for the state attorney that represented Idaho in that case because. It was a three-judge panel, three uh, justices of the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, and um, there you had it. The United States argued in favor of the treaty right. The state of Utah argued in favor of the treaty right, and so, of course, the tribal attorney. And it appeared from just watching that this is going to be a win for the Northwest Band, but you never know. You know, it's never, you don't know until they actually issue the opinion. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the the argument was that the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation was not a part of, of this treaty. Was that the argument that was trying to be made? The arg- basic argument was that they lost their right to hunt under the treaty by not uh, residing on the Fort Hall reservation or the Wind River Reservation. Wind River is located in Wyoming. Why would that matter? If if they wanted to live somewhere else and chose that doesn't change their heritage or their the rights to the treaty, but that's, I guess, the argument? Well, the argument was that in order to have the treaty right, you have to do what the United States you know, did in creating two reservations. You have to live there and make that your home. So if you don't live there, you don't get the right. But uh, I don't think the judges were buying that argument. So it's just this. It just makes me feel so badly, um, given all that they went through so many years ago, and now uh, because of the massacre that happened in 1863 of the women and children, the numbers of the Shoshone tribe, which you said is headquartered in Ogden, um, have have really never, it sounds like, recouped. There's still a very small band. Um, 
what do they do in the meantime for hunting? Do they come to Utah to do that, or do they stay in Utah to do that so that we don't so they don't get ticketed and prosecuted? A, a large area of their Aboriginal territory is located in Utah, so they do have that uh, right to hunt here in Utah, which the state of Utah recognizes and actually has a cooperative agreement. So they both sides understand, you know, where the tribal members will be hunting at what time of year, how many, you know. Uh, animals will be taken. So that's entered into by agreement. The state of Utah recognizes that treaty right. When um, when we're talking about hunters and, and how much this impacts uh, Idaho, can you remind us what the numbers are? How many hunters are going in there? How many animals are being harvested? Well, the cooperative agreement uh, sets limits um, by agreement on how many animals will be taken. But what the tribe has said, I've been in meetings with them when they were negotiating the agreement. They say they only have about 20 members that go out and hunt. But some of those members do hunt for some of the elders of the tribe that are incapacitated and can't exercise the right on their own. And subsistence is a very important thing to them. Are we talking dozens, hundreds, thousands? Uh, 20 hunters. That's what the tribe is at. You know, it, it may be a little more than that, but not much more. Uh, so when do you, any word on when there will be some sort of a, a decision, a ruling by the the, the, the appeals court? We never know for sure. My guess is in three or four months, we should have an opinion come from the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. Any indication at all as to why Idaho, the state of Idaho, wanted to start this issue to begin with? Oh, I just, my guess would be that um, the the tribe that exists on the Fort Hall Indian Reservation uh, feels like they they don't want their treaty rights, uh, you know, jeopardized in any way because actually that tribe, the Shoshone Bannock on the Fort Hall Reservation had to litigate with the state of Idaho because Idaho would not recognize their right. There's a case called United States versus Tenno that was decided many years ago where the state said the treaty says you have the right to hunt, but we think you don't have the right to fish. <laughs> and so the the tribes were taking the magnificent salmon in their aboriginal areas that come from the Pacific Ocean up to the oh. river system near Stanley, Idaho, and they do that by traditional spears. And uh, the state arrested a tribal member, you know, for doing that. And the judges had to decide whether or not fish was included in the right to hunt on the unoccupied lands of the United States. And a linguist was the major witness in the case and said in the, in the native language, you know, the word that they use is together. Uh, the animals, you know, this food source, and uh, the Idaho Supreme Court actually made that ruling. It was in state court, and the Supreme Court said the right to hunt includes the right to fish. Well, we appreciate your time and uh, your expertise. Larry Echohawk, who uh, was the U.S. Um, you served under U.S. President Barack Obama as the United States Assistant Secretary of the Interior for Indian Affairs. He did that for several years. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Thank you. We would love to get a phone call when that case is ruled upon by the, that three. 
panel judge, and we're keeping our fingers crossed. I am anyways for the Shoshone tribe, so thank Thank you. you. All right. Uh, Straight ahead, much more to come. Boyd Matheson walking in studio right now. President Biden has yet to announce he's running for re-election. Is he facing challenges already? I think Boyd has. David Dijanovic have inside sources. Well, we know that President Biden hasn't yet announced that he's running for re-election in 2024. So the question is, uh, we're going to explore this with uh, inside sources Boyd Matheson. Does it mean the Democrats might be considering alternatives? It's kind of hilarious that we're even having this conversation because if you're the sitting president, you're the next nominee. Like if you've got if you've got years left on on the you're in. You're the guy. So it is kind of strange where you where you start seeing these whisperings and these rumblings that oh, somebody could challenge him. Is it automatic, Boyd, for President Biden, like Dave suggests? Like, is it that automatic? When you look at the numbers, I mean, 37 percent of Democrats saying they want President Biden to run for election. So where's the other, you know, 63 percent? Yeah. So this is one of those things where uncertainty creates a vacuum. uh, And the president is notoriously slow and indecisive when it comes to big decisions. He's like like a massive Hoover vacuum. (laughs) Well, I'd never heard it that way, but well, but that's an interesting. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. It if does you're, the job. I'm sorry if you're a Eureka guy, but literally like, shark. I'm a shark. I mean, guy. he's just like okay. Well, just I'll just go off on that for a second. Like, whatever happened to the Chinese spy balloon issue? Like, he didn't say anything about that, and then he's yeah. still not saying much about it. But go ahead. Yeah, that's so an as, idea. So as, so as it comes to his reelect, uh, he's been very slow. It, it is really boiled down to to him. It's his decision now. You you've heard from Jill Biden. Uh, saying he's ready, he's good to go, we're anticipating this. So she's leaning in a little bit more than he is even at this point. So he's waiting. But in the absence of a leader, in an absence of momentum, then things start to bubble up. And, well, what about this and what about that? Uh, And it's not uh, all that uncommon uh, for a sitting president to get some sort of challenge. Usually it's someone from the far end of the party. So Marianne Williamson is going to launch her campaign. She will run to the left of the president, uh, universal health care, mandatory uh, minimum wage, some of those kind of uh, policies that she used in 2020 uh, when she ran. Uh, The more interesting thing, though, is if he waits too long – Will there be someone like a uh, governor of Michigan or someone who will yes. say, you know what, I, I think I think it's time for a next generation. Love the policies, uh, but my case is going to be about next generation leadership. And so that will be interesting. Now, uh, I think what Democrats are most fearful of is that rarely ends well for the sitting president. Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, George H.W. Uh, Bush, uh, the, the numbers don't really look good when the sitting president gets challenged in, in that way. Uh, and so that will be the real test. And I'm sure that's why some of the president's inner circle are saying, OK, Mr. President, it is now time to officially launch your, your 2024 run. I do wonder, though, how much of this, even though the, the president's wife is, uh, yeah, ready to go, do you think that he could just say one term was enough? I had to beat Donald Trump. I was the only one that could do it. I've done my job. Now it's time to turn it over to the next generation. Uh, he, he certainly, if anybody would do it, I think it would be Joe Biden, uh, that he would say, you know what, I think I am good, uh, and I don't need to go through this one more round. Uh, he does have a, a really deep sense of patriotism and duty. And so to your point, Dave, I, I, think that is a, that, I think that weighs on him pretty significantly, and he's invested a lot 
in that whole thing of, hey, we just got to restore some normalcy and some trust and some confidence uh, and just kind of get back to politics and business as usual uh, rather than kind of all the rhetoric that was there before. If he does that, if he decides not to run, his choice, not somebody forcing him out or trying to primary him out, uh, what's the timeline look to make that decision? Uh, Yesterday. Really? (laughs) Uh, And that's why you are starting to get – while the president is being silent – there, there is a silent group of little uh, shadow campaigns that are emerging, uh, including people within his own cabinet. Pete Buttigieg, I guarantee you, if President Biden uh, says, nope, one and done, uh, the Buttigieg campaign will launch rapid fire. Uh, you, governor Whitman, uh, we mentioned from Michigan, mm-hmm. she'd be in very quickly. What about uh, the governor from California? Uh, Gavin Newsom has been running for president for a long time. Uh, so he, he's set and he's got lots of cash. He could go right after that. It'll be interesting to see if any of the, the retreads come back around from, uh, from 2020. Cory Booker, a Democratic uh, senator from New Jersey, could be in there. Of course, the vice president, everybody's – no one's really talking about yeah. Kamala Harris. Yeah. She would certainly uh, be ready to roll uh, on that and try to take some momentum there. So there, there is a field. Too bad she's missing her window right now to really get out in front of some important issues – and she yeah. has been in the background for, I don't even know, uh, since the beginning. Since- uh, so so here's here's what Galen Druk, I think I said that right, Druk uh, said on Utah's Morning News um, about uh, this this whole like lay of the land with the Democrats and why people are open to some other options right now. I think in the absence of an actual announcement from President Biden that he's running for re-election, Democrats are saying, hey, you know, I would consider other options. And in particular, I think they're open to other options, in part because of Biden's age. You know, it's rare that uh, members of a party would question whether or not their first term president would even run for reelection, let alone whether or not they would support him if he did. So, you know, Biden is 80 today. He would be 82 um, at the start of a second term and would be by far the oldest president in American history to begin a second term. Galen Druk is with uh, the polling firm. Uh, he's an anchor reporter with uh, 538. We we talk to them a lot as well. I wonder what level of chaos you 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 start listing those those names and heavy hitters and people that have raised a lot of money, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. What level of chaos that would throw for the next year and a half? Uh, it would it would be it would be the ultimate combination of 2020 and 2016 because the Republicans will have a field. Uh, I don't think it would be quite as large, uh, but if President Biden chose not to run, you would have 2020 all over again. You could have 10, 12, 14, 16, and we didn't even get to Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar. All le- legitimately would look at at jumping in that race, and so yeah, it could be chaos on both sides of the aisle. Uh, if uh, if it really was truly an open uh, run for the presidency. So I'm looking, I had to remind myself of, you know, Marianne Williamson. You guys throw this out there. Like we all just like, we just know Marianne. Um, her middle name is Deborah. So automatically well, I was like, I'm impressed. Uh, she's 70 years old and she was, a, uh, what, a spiritual advisor to Oprah. Yeah. Is that, is yeah. that, is so, that a good, yeah. good way to put really it? Really made her name in the, in the self-help. Uh, yeah, she's an space. author, and she ran. I think she ran as an independent, though. No, she she, she ran, ran as a Democrat. She ran as a Democrat. A Democrat yeah. last time. Okay, so so is she is she, is she going to announce again? Yes. 
and that will and be it. She is, and that will be it. And that yeah, will be the last you hear of her. Yeah, it, it won't. I mean, she has money. She, she does have money, so she's going to hang around for a while. Uh, she didn't make it to any of the primaries in she's 2020. Like a perpetual so, candidate. But yeah, she's just, you know, she'll go out there. She'll she'll give some speeches. She'll well, raise the profile. Uh, she'll do the interviews. And I'm sure she'll probably release another book. we not but. find anybody in this nation of ours at all besides uh Trump and Biden to to get to the top of the ticket again. I, I actually think there's some really interesting ones. I actually spoke with uh, Amy Klobuchar's uh, former uh, communications director in chief, uh, and uh, you know she's she's legitimate. She uh, if the field had been a little less crowded and it hadn't been in the middle of COVID, she would have been. Uh, I think she would have been there at the end. And I think she's an interesting candidate. Midwest um, has some real chops in uh, in Senate uh, in the Judiciary Committee. Uh, has a little bit of a profile, uh, and she's just super smart. She would she would be a good candidate, um, I think, running up against whether it's a President Biden or whether it's the rest rest of the field. Is there a uh, a time where where the rest of the candidates that are kind of sitting back, waiting for the president to make a decision, where they just say, "We can't wait for you any longer. We're going to challenge you." Is there anyone bold enough to say, "That's fine"? Marianne Williamson is kind of a throwaway. You know, yeah. it's kind kind of. You know, whatever. But it, at some point, somebody's going to say, you know what, we can't wait any longer, and I'm going to shoot my shot. Yeah, and uh, and so that will be the interesting thing. It's going to come in the next couple of months. And that's why you're hearing uh, – what I hear out of D.C. is there's a lot of rumblings, and people are saying, okay, come on, Mr. President. We think you're going to do it. Everyone thinks you're going to do it. You're organized to do it, so just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, though, people are going to get antsy. And here's the thing. If one significant person does it, Katie by the door. Yeah, it's, uh, it will be open and it will be a very different animal uh, and a different challenge for the president because that becomes tough for the president to navigate. Uh, Debbie mentioned the, the age component and, and uh, getting to that, uh, although I think what he's done in the last two weeks kind of puts that to bed. Anybody who can go into the middle of his, a war zone, 25 mm-hmm. hours on a train, uh, two major speeches uh, in the middle of a war zone, I mean – yeah, I think he put that to yeah, bed. That's a good point. I, I think that he should just say, "Triple dog dare you, take a take a train ten hours each way into a war zone, uh, meet with the leader of the country who is under attack from Russia, come back and give a major speech in Poland, all within thirty hours." Triple dog dare, go for it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and I think that's his line. The thing that's working <laughs> against him, Boyd, is we have short term memory when it comes to the big stuff, and we have a long term memory. Mm. When it comes to, uh, or when it comes to that kind of stuff, but a long-term memory when it comes to the places where they, 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 our leaders fall down. And I will tell you, the Chinese spy balloon, what's going on in Ohio with the train derailment mm-hmm. and the government, or the federal government taking weeks to show up on scene there, and uh, all the things that the small town America is facing in that scenario, those will play big too. Yeah, I, and I think I still think the biggest challenge for the president is inflation. Uh, because that is hitting oh, everybody, that. just that little thing of inflation that's hitting everybody at every kitchen table every single day. Uh, and I think that's the the biggest headwind for the president is that he can talk about infrastructure. He can talk about bipartisan deals. He can talk about these other things. But when the American people are feeling that angst mm-hmm. of I'm falling further behind, I'm not even main, you know, treading water is not even the option anymore. It's how how long can I hold my breath and hopefully make it to the next paycheck in the next month? That's the biggest challenge for the president. Uh, so he's got to he's got to grapple with that and what that message is, uh, and then uh, how you actually push that part of it forward. But I would have thought that inflation that we are experiencing during the midterms would have played a bigger role than it did. 
But never underestimate the Republicans' ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Straight ahead. Thanks, Boyster. Straight ahead, KSL News Radio reporter Lindsay Aird. She's got her eye on the hill. She's been our our reporter on the scene up on Capitol Hill for weeks now. As the session winds down, we are just days away from the closing bell on Utah's Capitol Hill. She'll join us next with what she's focused Eye on the Hill 2023 special coverage with David Dejanovic. Here she is she's running in studio Lindsay Ertz who's been our Eye on the Hill not only our Eye on the Hill, you've physically been on the Hill for us <laughs> out of breath, did you just come from Capitol Hill? <laughs> Deep breaths, uh, I was working on a story back there and I forgot, here we are uh, here she comes Miss America running in studio. So glad to have you again Lindsay, we've talked this morning uh, Dave, you, as Dave was, you know Dave, you were here, we started the show with what I think is a big win for first-time home buyers, and that is the twenty thousand um, dollar infusion of money into the mortgage uh, that got passed by Capitol Hill, overwhelmingly by both the Senate and the House. It now goes to the governor, and we had President of the Senate Stuart Adams on, and it looks like they're ramping up to get that program started by summer, so people can start applying um, to get into their first-time home. I'm trying to remember. Deb, was it like nine total people that opposed this, whether yeah. in the Senate, it was in the House? So 88 in favor, nine e- against. Extremely popular. Mm-hmm. And when you have the backing of the Senate president yeah, on a, a bill, yes, it sends a message for sure. Yeah, a, a little odd. And, and I asked President Adams about this when he joined us, uh, when a developer, former developer, which is what President Adams is, um, and oddly enough, the House Speaker, Brad Wilson, also a house uh, a home developer, um, when they're involved in these kind of things, there there's either a direct conflict of, of interest or maybe on the outskirts a, a conflict of interest. He says, I haven't built a house basically in 10 years, yeah. so there's no direct conflict there. But um, nevertheless, huge sway from two developers or former developers. Yeah, and I think uh, actually the Senate president was asked, you know, does this just benefit your developer buddies, right? That's a it's a fair question and I, uh, President Adams denies that, right? He legitimately has said multiple times that he's worried about the middle class and he really wants to be able to help these first-time home buyers. Um, the other thing I'm curious about is do you guys think that this that market forces might come into play here? Do you think it's possible that Perhaps developers or perhaps builders could drive up the cost of new homes because they know that first-time home buyers are getting a 20% bump. Well, here's the deal. They have a cap of $450,000, according to this law, that these first-time home buyers could qualify up to $450,000. Um, it has to be a new home. So they've got to work under that threshold, or they're not going to get that that new home buyer who's looking to apply for that $20,000. I'm surprised and I'm saddened uh, for the next generation of home buyers that we have to be sitting here saying four hundred and fifty thousand dollars is the threshold. Mm-hmm. I think this what uh, is your affordable yeah, first home? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes and it 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 does make me feel like if I'm encouraging my children to take a take advantage, if you will, of this program that you got to come to the table with more than just uh, dipping into this this fund and taking the twenty thousand. You've got to to come up with other ways to help finance uh, that your down payment or buy down the interest rate or ask the seller to buy down the interest rate or pay for closing costs. 
Um, but I think what this will do ultimately is it will drive developers to build, and you're, Dave, you're going to hate this, more townhomes and condominiums. And I, I truly believe that is the wave of the future, that our next generation is, is going to tire of taking care of yards, of trying to figure out where they're going to get the water from to water their yards, keeping those large trees behind their bedrooms watered and alive, and also all the maintenance costs that go into uh, keeping up the exterior of your home. I'd much rather pay, um, you know, I've been in both situations, and I, at this point, I'd much rather pay an HOA a few hundred dollars a month and I'll have to snow blow or mow my lawn. And I think. Most of us have lived in that situation at some point, whether it was apartment living, dorm living. We've shared walls with other people. There's something to be said about living in your own home. You're not sharing a wall with a neighbor. What I don't understand, Lindsay, though, and this is something that we've heard consistently, this will encourage developers to build these single-family units. Uh, How do you get the developers on board? Because – Ultimately, if I can build uh, townhomes and condos with more density, then how, how do I get them to not go after maximum profit? Mm. Well, don't you – I mean, you make money when you build, right? So that's kind of the, the – When you sell. Yeah, when you build and when you, you sell. sell. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so President Adams has said, you know, back to that conversation of accusing him of helping his developer buddies. I mean, he's kind of said this helps both those industries at the same time, the first tire first time home buyer market and then also the developers and the builders who uh, will build these homes because there's some money now for people to use. So he he also brings up uh, or at least this sheds light on a, on a point that I, that I think about quite often is we do spend as a state a significant amount of money and cities invest as well in more affordable housing. And, and what I don't mean is the 350000 versus the four fifty, you know, affordable housing. What I'm talking about is, you know, the, the equation that is used for people of a certain income level, level to, to get into an affordable housing unit and that's what they pay every single month. But what we neglect to address and we have for years is for the people who are outside, over that threshold who are earning more but are still staring at, you know, the idea of not being able to collect or uh, collect enough money, to, you know, a pool yeah. of money to, to put into their first time home. They're shut out of the housing market. Well, part of that is market forces that the state has no control over, right? right? Which we is bidding ra- wars. Yeah, and we raise the interest rates, too, so people aren't wanting to sell their houses as much anymore because they can't get a good rate when they buy a new one, right? So it, it is cooling things right. off and slowing things a little bit. Yeah. With such overwhelming support, both in the Senate and the House, just a handful of People voted against it. Uh, lawmakers voted against it. Did you even hear any arguments against this $20,000 that would be av- available for first-time homebuyers? No, I think the big concern is uh, we're giving taxpayer money to this program. Uh, what happens if they um, – do they have to pay it back? So that's kind of one of the measures that they took care of in this bill is if you sell the home within, I believe it's like three years or something like that, you have to pay the loan back. And you got to pay the loan over the cost of the mortgage too. So it's not just, quote-unquote, handing out free money. 
Um, President Adams was very clear when he said, we don't do that. But this allows them to have a chunk of money they can put towards a home and then pay it back as they live. It's a lien. Yeah. It'll be a lien on the property. And so the state can recoup the money once the home is sold or it is refinanced. And we also asked him when he joined the show earlier if this, um, you know, $50 million pot of money would um, be replenished year over year. And he was, I will just say, noncommittal on that. He was pretty point blank when he said, this is a one-time deal. (laughs) But he said a one-time deal. What we didn't get a chance to ask him, and I think this can be a follow-up for another day, is um, who qualifies? Like, is there... is special consideration given to certain people in terms of income levels? Like, is it just first come, first serve? I, do we, I don't think we got a chance to ask him that question. I'm sure that's written into the bill somewhere, I think. Uh, and I don't know I, off the top of my head. I'm sorry. For, no, it's from okay. my understanding, it is for the first-time home buyer. Right. But who qualifies as a first-time home buyer yeah. is someone that hasn't purchased a residence, a primary residence, in the last three years. So... I could qualify. So, but I wonder, here's another question that we don't have an answer to. If, uh, you know, my kids' friends move in from uh, New Mexico or California and they've lived here for a minute. Uh, do they qualify? Do they, get, do they leapfrog in front of the, the kids who were born and raised in Utah? It will be fascinating to see how far this this stretches and how many people are able to tap into this. Linz, what do you got? In 30 seconds, what are you looking at today? Okay, well, I'm tracking the big abortion bill today because we know that House bills could come up in the Senate at any moment. So that bill would restrict and limit access to abortions in Utah. So we're going to follow that. We know that Planned Parenthood of Utah is holding a press conference midday about that as well. So we'll continue to track that. Um, we are watching the big tax bill. We're watching uh, social media bills. We're watching wow. uh, the bill to disband UPD. So we've got a lot of a lot of big pieces that haven't passed the legislature, although they're likely to. They haven't actually passed yet. Just a couple days left. Let's go. All right, Lindsay Ertz, thank you for joining us. You Political bet, reporter here at KSL News Radio. Yeah, you're doing a great job, Lindsay. We'll have you back on the show same time tomorrow. See you then. Straight ahead, the KSL 5 investigative team is walking in studio right as Lindsay's walking out. Uh, We had an amazing discussion with them yesterday as they tracked Utah's system of injustice when victims of assault report cases and police departments have done nothing with them. Uh, Straight ahead, what are prosecutors doing? David Jennings. Uh, Look, sometimes uh, the KSL 5 investigative team, um, I think that they they should be cops and prosecutors because they have done more (laughs) to reveal uh, what is going on behind the scenes in our system, what I call Utah's system of injustice, the injustice system that we've been running in the state of Utah for years, than a lot of police departments and prosecuting agencies have done. We're going to dive into day two of this story involves one suspect, multiple police departments that weren't doing anything with these cases that these women were reporting. And now we're going to take it to the next level. What did prosecutors do about it, David? When we're talking about victims of sexual assault, this is already an incredibly difficult, vulnerable, agonizing thing for victims to even come forward on. And when they see a pattern of uh, uh, of inaction, uh, would you not feel helpless and absolutely just devastated 
Yeah. If if your if your attacker goes free, yeah. or you never get a call back yeah. from the police department, like what you guys were uncovering and talking to us about yesterday, uh, this report aired last night at ten. You can see it uh, on KSLTV.com. Daniela Rivera, the KSL Five investigative reporter, port reporter, <laughs> Kira. We're from Boston. <laughs> Barrymont, the investigative producer uh, on this story. Uh, okay, uh, I, I never know which one of you to start with because you know the, this is team is a hand and glove thing where you're just working side by side all the time. Um, but but let's so first of all let's just back up. Dave wasn't here yesterday. He might not have heard all of these details. But let's just back up. Spend thirty seconds, kind of. Kira, let's start with you refreshing. This case starts with one guy yep. um, and, and multiple police departments. Yep. Five police departments were, were across three counties the last 10, almost 11 years. Twelve women who have gone to police. Only two cases have ever led to charges. And there were uh, assault charges, Sexual right? assault charges. Or, or claims of yep. sexual assault. Yes. Okay. And then, Daniela, um, we find that... You found. I don't want to take credit for your work, but we <laughs> KSL finds that um, these cases, in many many cases, just kind of end up in a file somewhere in these in the police department, and then these victims are never contacted uh, again. They don't know what happens to their case, and it turns out in some cases, nothing at all. Right? Absolutely. They feel dismissed. They feel discouraged. And then you have other people from the outside looking in and saying, "Well, why would I go report what happened to me? Because all these other women did, and nothing happened for them." This individual specifically, you, you said, had been charged twice, accused a dozen times, but charged twice. What happened with those charges? So when he was a juvenile, he was charged with rape of a child under 14. He pled that down to sexual battery. And then in 2021, he was charged in two counties with a sex crime with against a 16-year-old. He's 26 at that time. And those cases were both pled down as well. Uh, Daniela, take us, uh, walk us through when you start talking to prosecutors um, about these cases and other sexual assault cases and the prosecution of these those types of cases in the state of Utah. What do you find? Well, they tell us first, these are tough, tough cases to investigate and to prove. Um, even harder than homicides, right? Because you have this human element. You have someone who's experienced trauma. And sometimes we don't behave and act the way you would expect after we've been through trauma. So that's something that they have to find a way to work around. But there was a very common phrase we heard over and over and over that seems to be impacting these cases. The he said, she said Absolutely. phrases. Uh, now you spoke to experts outside of police departments who say this is kind of a this is a bunch of garbage yeah, yeah. a good way to put it okay yeah. let's listen there's a common phrase used to describe cases like Vanessa's this was a he said she said case he said she said cases are extremely rare so the four worst words I ever hear in a row are he said she said somebody knows there is evidence there. Justin Boardman, a retired SVU detective, and Donna Kelly are on a mission to dispel rape myths and spread awareness about trauma and how these tough cases can be proven. One of those myths is this whole he said, she said concept. What it usually means is we haven't looked hard enough. Okay, let's continue with this. Haven't looked hard enough, haven't investigated it hard enough? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The solution is, is it Well, how do police departments respond to that? 
when you challenge them and say, well, have you looked hard enough? You know, I, I think it's a, a very difficult thing to be investigating. So I want to I want to say I don't think there's anyone who's not trying or doesn't care. Um, what we're hearing over and over is that there is lack of education and lack of training about trauma and what to even be looking for. So that prosecutor, Donna Kelly, told us something that she always would ask detectives to go back is go talk to the person that this survivor first told about their experience. Talk to the people close to them. How did their life change? And she said that goes a long way with juries because they're thinking, well, if I were raped, that would significantly impact my life. She says we have to be collecting that evidence. And she also said that there's even cases when police don't think a crime was committed. I want to listen. I want to listen to her uh, say this. I have filed cases before where the police didn't think a crime had been committed. And in this one case in particular, I remember the detective sitting with me the whole trial. The third day of the trial, he leaned over to me and he said, he really raped her, didn't he? <laughs> and I said, yeah, he did. They, I think in some, in my experience, uh, having been a reporter and reported on police issues and, and also with the investigative unit, is that I've seen it before where officers have their mind made up. And I don't know if that's what what you found um, along the way. I'm just saying that from my experience that there are cases that are – they are can be difficult cases, but sometimes those are prejudiced automatically when the victim sits down and the officer already has their mind made up. Yeah, there's absolutely biases. Um, Kira, how, how does that ahead. happen, though, Deb? I mean, I, I – are they just not believing the story, or yeah, is there a common thread that. that is coming through uh, that yeah. that causes this yeah. doubt? Uh, we've heard from uh, law enforcement experts who say, you know, this impact of trauma can cause a victim to not remember things in you know sequential order, and they'll recall different things at different times. And how police are trained to look for, you know, maybe lying. It could look like that yeah. when really that's trauma impacting how this person remembers what happened. Yeah. So the fact that the timeline may differ. It could over, be timeline over. or details or just how they react and explain things can look differently and just not make sense if you don't understand how trauma impacts your brain. Well, let's even back up a little bit more to your story from the night before last, uh, Kira, where you had a statement from, I believe it was the Rory Police Department, that apologized in, in, in so many words for not uh, following through with one of the uh, assault reports that they received because of turnover within the police department, right. that it almost had gotten lost in the shuffle of officer turnover. Yep. So it could even be that. And that was the police, chief's, chief of police's re- re- reply, right? Absolutely. I mean, that came from the top. It did. Yeah. They had no idea that this had happened until we reached out. Same with Davis County Sheriff's Office. So you have a situation there where, you know, an officer retires or they go to another police department and they... They don't pass the case on to the next officer. Daniela, what's the follow-up on this? What do you see in the in the days and the weeks ahead? Uh, I know you guys have been working hard on these last couple of stories, but do you see any change in Utah 
whether it's in the thought process or how um, these cases are looked at once they get to an officer's desk? You know, I hope so. And I think the more we have these conversations about the realities of trauma, hopefully that understanding will spread. Something else that I wanted to get in quickly is a lot of these cases are delayed reports. And there seems to be um, an idea of, well, it's harder to prove a delayed report. We're hearing from prosecutors that a delay should never impact how a case is investigated. It should always be thoroughly investigated because most reports of sexual assault are delayed. That is the norm. Can I just add one thing? And this is just from, again, from my vantage point from where I'm sitting is I would like to see police departments all over Utah and beyond get on the same page with these cases and it has to be automatic. And it it's maybe it's not sexual assault cases, but domestic violence cases. Um, but there has to be shared information and collaboration among police departments because in the case of the suspect you looked at, Kira, it would seem like he was kind of jurisdiction hopping, if yeah. you will. Maybe not intentionally, but that's how this looks. He was... He was yep. in, in police reports all over. All over the place. And, you know, across counties, they're not seeing what the other counties are doing. Daniela Rivera, uh, Kira Faramon, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. So appreciative of your reporting. Look forward to the follow-ups on this. Uh, straight ahead, uh, we're going to talk about an event that's taking place uh, this month because – it's already March. Um, officer services like haircuts, employment, um, and other amazing services to our homeless population or people experiencing homelessness. Uh, Project Homeless Connect. Dave and Janovic. There's a very important event uh, for our friends experiencing homelessness that is coming up in just a few weeks. We're going to speak with the project manager of, uh, or excuse me, the executive director of Project Homeless Connect. Um, and at the toward the end of the month, uh, they will be hosting a major event that offers all kinds of services. I'm very much looking forward to talking to Mike Ackerlow in just a matter of moments. I remember we broadcasted uh, from Project Homeless Connects uh, Fair, I guess is a way you could almost call it, from 2019. It was a massive success. And then COVID hits. Mm-hmm. And I want to know, uh, Mike Ackerlow, who joins us right now, the executive director from Project Homeless Connect, uh, what was it like? I remember 2019. It was an incredible success. What happened when COVID hit? Oh, it was a little frustrating. We'd really hit our stride, as we were yeah. talking about. And the, the event was such a success. And then everything stopped. So we looked at how do we do this differently? Uh, we're not going to have the volunteer component like we wanted, but we can still bring services. So we reached out to the community. They did a lot of donations, a lot of drives. We were able to provide clothing, a lot of uh, just needs that people had and take those right to the, the resource centers themselves. We had looked at trying to bring services into the, the resource centers rather than at, an event, at a mm. separate location. But we had another wave hit, and it the, just didn't make sense for us to get people together. What's coming up at the uh, end of this month or towards the end of the month? What is the date? Where is it at? And what services will be offered? Yes, yeah, so it is on Friday, March 24th. It's at the Salt Palace. Uh, we're in Hall 5, which is right on 3rd West. And uh, we have about 100 service providers that come in and provide a range of services, everything from haircuts and pet care and veteran services to housing and employment. We have uh, uh, legal services where people can get their records expunged. We have um, a lot of donations, a lot of drives. We have medical, vision. People can get glasses made on site. We have a whole dental component where people get cleanings and extractions done. So it's a, a wide range. And in, in, ni- in 2019, we did over 4,000 individual services uh, that day. 
Why? It's interesting. You talk about record expungement, mental health resources, uh, employment. You know, that makes so much sense. The haircut kind of mm. stands out to me, mm-hmm. though. I thought, mm. why is that an important part of it? Uh, you know, the greatest thing about this day is people feel seen. And sometimes something like getting a haircut, getting a beard trim, something like that just makes somebody, it just brings that feeling of, of, of value. And, and I see, I feel seen, I feel pretty, I feel handsome. And uh, it's one of our most popular services. And the really cool thing is after they get their haircut, we have a photographer that does a self-portrait. They'll, they'll take a photo of them so they get a portrait of themselves all freshened up and looking clean. You know, it's really a, just a human experience. And it's getting people feeling uh, good about themselves and, and um, just little things like haircuts make such a difference. We're it. speaking right now in studio to Mike Ackerlow. He's the executive director of Project Homeless Connect. Big event coming up on March 24th where people experiencing homelessness can go and get all kinds of free services. And let's talk about that record expungement. When you say that, I think that's so important mm-hmm. uh, for their future. Yes. Uh, if they um, are looking for a job, uh, oftentimes that record has followed them and they're eligible for expungement, which could help them get right. the job. But they don't know it until they can get to somebody who can help them through the process. Right. And we have... Oh, about I think about 20 different attorneys that come in here and help with this. And then the really cool thing is they can take care of that, and then they can walk over to the Department of Workforce Services and apply for things that they need to there to connect them to a job. So rather than having services spread throughout the county, you get them all in one place, and I can go to this booth, to this booth, and get a lot yeah. taken care of in just a matter of moments. So this is some incredible one-stop shopping uh, for, <laughs> for the day. But uh, how can the community get involved and and what goes into being a volunteer? This is one of my favorite parts about the event, besides seeing people's lives changed from getting services, is the community aspect. We have a lot of volunteer, about 20 different volunteer opportunities uh, that you can sign up for, and it's on our website. Um, And one of the biggest ones is being a guest guide. and, and, And if you choose to do that, you're partnered with somebody who's experiencing homelessness. You sit down with them and say, what do we want to accomplish today? You fill out a little worksheet, and then you spend the day connecting them to those services. And it kind of sounds like, okay, I get it. I walk around, whatever. It's an incredible experience. You talk to somebody and get to know their story. You see homelessness from a completely different perspective. When we talk about Project Homeless Connect, it is connecting people to services. But I think equally or more important, it's a human connection experience. How can people find out more information? Is their website? Yes. It's phcslc.org. And if you miss that, um, because it's a lot of letters all strung <laughs> together, how about we do our listeners a favor and we post it at kslnewsradio.com or one, our one-stop shopping for all things that come out of the show and uh, our news coverage throughout the day. So, Mike, thank you so much yes, for joining you. us. And people have to get volunteer applications in. Right away. Yep. We are we are imagine. the last moment. So we need your help. Please sign up and and. We'll find a good space for you. Yeah, it's exciting. And thank you so much. And we're excited to be a part of it as well. Thanks for coming in studio. You've and been it, a great supporter, so thank oh, you. Oh, well, been great. and it's so nice to we realize you are our third guest we've had in studio today. We've had, you know, it's nice, which goes to, it's nice to be back together. Yes. yes. Right? You yes. guys got shut down in 2020 because of COVID, but now we're all getting back together we are again. Back. So it's good yes. to see you face to face, Mike. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Yeah, outstanding. And again, uh, that's Project Homeless Connect, P H C S L C. I just Google it. Uh, that's a dot org, P H C S L C dot org. But if you Google Project Homeless Connect, uh, it'll pop up right at the top of the page and you can find out much more and how you can help.
Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Straight ahead, Maria Chaleos up next, of course, with all the day's news coverage. Uh, She's particularly keeping an eye like we were earlier on Utah's Capitol Hill, where we are just uh, a couple of days away from uh, the clock striking midnight and the 2023 session coming to a close. Joining us next about it. Don, today, has an answer for us. That can be a total game changer. Into the house that is debilitating. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.